Come back from your break. The bell usually works. I was talking to a friend the other day, a student, someone I've worked with for a number of years, so I, I know her quite well. And she was telling me about a really difficult situation she was having in her family. You know, one of those times where there's no right answer, no right response, really intense uh, experience she was having. But what she was really grateful for is that her practice really supported her through that time. She actually found that she was able to be relatively present. You know, these things come and go, but relatively present some equanimity, some sense of spaciousness or perspective around this situation. So she was very appreciative that in the really time of stress and need that the years of practice that she'd put in really supported her. But her question was, does it last? Or more, she felt that it doesn't last. You know, it was great, it was there, you know, really needed it. But she, like most of us, when there's not that intensity, whether it's being on retreat or a certain experience or situation, we tend to go back to default setting, right? Whatever that might be, uh, our old habit patterns, because they're so familiar. So we had a whole discussion about this, about how much can this practice actually change us? Does it really... Um, work with these deep-seated patterns that we might have of fear or worry or anxiety. For those of you that have done retreats, long, the residential retreats that we have here, you've probably had a taste of how meditation practiced in that way really can move the mind and body in, into different places and often real strong tastes of peace or calm or freedom or insight, wisdom, understanding can come up. And even when we sit in meditation, just like we did this evening, can have tastes of that, just uh, stepping back a little from the craziness of our lives and perhaps calming down or engaging with experience with more understanding. But just being able to be mindful or calm or equanimous or happy or whatever it might be on retreat or on the cushion doesn't really serve us in our lives, does it? You know, it, that's a very isolated, time-limited experience that we might have. So the point of practice, of course, is how we live our lives, what our relationships are like, what our internal experience is like in an ongoing way you know, day after day, not about some rare experiences that we have every now and then. So I've been thinking about this a lot recently, um, and it calls to mind um, what's known as the happiness set point. You may have heard of this. It's not a new idea. It's actually, I think, a somewhat old idea. Not, I don't know how old, but um, there's a lot of... Um, 
there was a sort of belief that everyone had a happiness set point. And no matter what happened to you, whether it was meant to be wonderful, like, and their idea of wonderful was always winning the lottery. That's like the best thing that could happen to everyone. I think we've gotten now that perhaps that's not the case. But anyway, winning the lottery or, you know, serious loss, illness, you know, um, your own health or loss of loved ones. Um, but the idea was even if those extremes happened, that sooner or later, after some matter of months, people would come back to the same set point of happiness, that it didn't change that much. Um, but the new thinking is that that's actually not true, that it's possible to quite radically change the experience of happiness that we have on an ongoing way uh, in our lives. And so there's this huge surge of um, scholarship, of research, and certainly books being written with uh, around this theme of happiness and I'm, I'm told that you know if you want your book to sell there are like three words you put in the title it's like free easy and happy so you know the easy and free way to happiness this is meditation is the easy and free way to happiness you're all good to go um, but it's in right now I'm sure you you're very aware of this too articles here and there front covers of magazines little books uh, that are being written and this is of course the country where in your Declaration of Independence, uh, an inalienable right is, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In some ways, not a new thing. But hopefully, we're getting a little wiser about what we're talking about here, about happiness. Because I'm told I'm not a therapist or a psychiatrist or anything, but that the sort of the, the low bar or the intention of most therapies or psychiatries, psychi psychiatrists some time ago was just to kind of reduce people's neuroses. You know, if we could make them less happy, that's, that's all we can hope for in this day and age. And now, of course, there's a whole movement of positive psychology where there really is a sense that, no, it's not just, you know, can we be a little less unhappy, but can we really elevate that sense of well-being and happiness and, and uh, bring that into greater accessibility in an ongoing way? So, as I said, you know, Studies are being done about how to do this, books being written. Our own teachers here, Sylvia Borstein has written a book called Happiness is an Inside Job. Um, and it really is, you know, talking about how we can use meditation to develop this sense of well-being. James Barras, one of the, our teachers here, a Spirit Rock teacher, has been involved for a very long time, uh, lives in the East Bay, teaches mainly in the East Bay, and has this wonderful course called Awakening Joy. Some of you, anyone here done Awakening Joy? Just one or two people, but it's fabulous, right? It takes, um, I don't know, a few months, six months or so. They have monthly classes and homework, and it's very engaged, uh, a lot of practices, all around noticing the potential for more joy in one's life. And what I've heard about it is I've actually gone and talked with James over there and there's a great atmosphere in the room because people really care about this. It's not about changing the circumstances of one's life. That usually doesn't change that much. But just noticing that there's this potential for joy and happiness all the time, which we often miss because we're so obsessed with whatever task is in front of us. So there really are a, a lot of great constructive ways of doing of developing a, a, a deeper sense of happiness in one's life. 
One of the books I like, I know James really uh, likes this book too, is written by Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, and they, I think they both live in the East Bay. They've often come to Spirit Rock. And their book is called How We Choose to Be Happy, The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People. And I really found that book helpful or valuable, especially as a meditator, because it talked about the choice to be happy. It wasn't about getting what you want or, you know, chasing the dream of whatever that is in career or relationship. It was in a, in a very immediate way making choices about how you relate to this experience, whatever it is, and to find happiness in that. So really I found a, a very um, useful tool or support for deepening in happiness. <coughs> Of course, even as we say that, that it's possible, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen by wishing for it, that's for sure. We really need to bring a sense of conscience, consciousness to this and set intentions. Really have it be a value that we care about and then the change can happen. And I'm sure you're aware of that. That's what, for anything, this is important. Um, we need to actually care about deepening the, the, improving the quality of our lives. And happiness here is a, a broad term I'm using. You could replace it with a lot of things like calm or equanimity or peace or whatever. But happiness really does, I think it's, it's a good term. The Buddha says things like, you know, my, you know, the point of a human life is to be happy. It's, it's not the trivial sense of happiness, but it really, we, to even embark on this, um, as a practice, as a, as a direction in your life, we have to know what happiness is, right? And it's a word that can seem quite trite, you know, happiness is getting an ice cream or, you know, some particular sense delight that you've been craving. But I think true happiness, especially in the way I'm using the term and the people I've already talked about who've written books about it, are talking about something deeper than that. Daniel Gilbert, again, if you're interested in this, you've probably heard of his research. He, he's written a book called Stumbling on Happiness, where he says that most of the things that people think will bring happiness actually don't. Have you read his stuff? You know about this? Um, so all of the things, you know, what, what do you want? Well, family, you know, travel, having money, having certain possessions. This is what our society, our culture pu puts out is, you know, you have those things, you have the right relationship or the right career or the right car or whatever it is, then you'll be happy. You know, I think you're all here because you figured out that's not so, but many people still believe that, that it's only because they haven't got the right toy yet that they're unhappy. And, you know, travel is a great one. I like to travel, see new sites, and I've done quite a bit of traveling in my life. We tend to remember the good things, right? When we plan our next trip, or what gets put up on Facebook, or the beautiful sunsets, or the you know view of the church or cathedral, or the great meal you had. You don't so much put pictures up of the time you got lost or the hotel didn't have your booking when you showed up or the train was late and you missed the connection. You know, the stuff that actually happens, it's stressful usually to travel, especially, you know, the trips that seem the greatest like traveling in Asia or traveling in Europe, going to a lot of different cities. I can remember years ago, my parents 
um, did one of these trips in Europe and it sounded great. You know, you read the brochure and here's Brussels and Bruges and Paris and all this. And at the end, they were just bedraggled. You know, they were exhausted. It was like suitcase outside the door at 7 a.m. Be on the bus at 8 or we leave you behind. You know, you have half an hour to look through the Louvre or whatever it is, you know. <laughs> and they were so happy to, to get home. Um, but it looks good, right? We think this should make you make us happy. And then you get home and you tell people the good things about it, of course. And he goes, oh, it sounds wonderful. You go, well, yeah, I guess it was. But, you know, after I recover from this trip. So this is just an example of how, you know, these, the stuff of our lives are what we think will make us happy. And it really doesn't. It's about shifting our perspective or even our understanding of what happiness is and exploring that. So all of us need to explore that for ourselves. What is true happiness? From your own experience, talking to others, you know, research, doing reading, because it's not, it's not a simple question, really, and I encourage you to look into it, because we kind of think we know, you know, what we're heading for, what our goals are in life, but it's, it's amazing how often it, what we're doing is out of habit or something a career counselor told you, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, whenever it was, or what your family thinks you might do, should do. Um, so to really do this as an investigation. One definition of happiness that I've always liked comes from that book the, about the choices, the nine choices of happy people, because it's really very broad. This definition says that our definition of happiness is a profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness. It's a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing that you can deal productively and creatively with all life offers, both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. And it's a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me. But a Buddhist teacher could have written this. There's so much living in the moment, knowing your internal self, well-being. It's not about accumulating a certain number of toys or getting what you want because you wished for it. Um, it really is a process of knowing yourself and knowing what's really valuable. So as I was doing this research, I read that book and articles, you know, just curious about this happiness movement and what it had to offer. And I think there's some really valid and valuable um, understandings and tools that we can get from the research that's being done. But I wondered about the overlap between happiness and mindfulness. And even, is there a mindfulness set point? You know, we go on retreat or we have a certain experience like my friend where we really use the practice of mindfulness to um, help us. Maybe we've done a mindfulness-based stress reduction course, and it was helpful then. But when that engagement or motivation, whatever it was, dies down, do we go back to this same place? And also, what's the connection between mindfulness and meditation and happiness? I personally think there's a deep and profound connection because the very point of these teachings is not just to reduce stress 
but dis discover a, 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 a profound sense of, you could say, happiness. The Buddha might w use the word freedom or awakening. Um, these are all kind of interchangeable, really a reduction in the amount of suffering that we have in our lives. So I think they really are um, overlapping. And again, there's been a whole slew of mindfulness research. And again, I'm sure most of you have heard about this, not news, it's what you know, makes the cover of the magazines. It's like the Buddha said it 2,500 years ago, Thousands of people have proved it, millions probably through their internal experience, people who come here to Spirit Rock all over the world, Asia. That doesn't matter. Someone ha gets a meter that moves, now we know it really works. But I'm kind of joking a little because I, I actually value the research they're doing because if it um, opens people's minds to the possibility that this kind of practice is beneficial, I think that's wonderful. And so they are, through these empirical studies and tests, functional MRIs and all different kinds of things, getting data that supports that meditation really does change us. And not just in some sort of wishy-washy way, but almost physiologically. You know, they can track changes in the brain, in neural pathways, and that People that are meditating register differently in these functional uh, MRIs. Um, and one of the people who's doing this research, Richie Davidson, he's at the University of Madison. He's a meditator, a friend, um, and he has come a few times to a long retreat that I teach, many other people teach, of course, too, at our sister center in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society, where they'll take people that are practicing for six weeks or three months and um, have them do all these kind of tests of acuity, uh, you know, their perception and things like that. But they also take blood, which is, you know, that's just a, a real objective marker. And there's been obviously improvement in people's acuity um, in meditation. Actually, one of the studies that Richie did on some Tibetan practitioners took these monks who'd been in, you know, caves for years, the archetypal kind of Buddhist monk who'd done these really intense practice. And the study he wrote is called Long-Term Meditators Self-Induce High-Amplitude Gamma Synchrony During Mental Practice. So it's not a very sexy title. I don't even have any idea what it means, but I was told it was a good thing. But when he did the tests that were on um, mainly Western practitioners at IMS a few years ago, what they discovered through these blood tests was things called telomeres, which he explained to me while ago, a while ago what they were, and I would try to think about it, I can't remember, but they're somehow indicators of stress and aging. They were in much healthier or better condition um, in the test group, these people who'd been meditating. So, you know, there's data now saying that this kind of practice really does change us and change us for the better. There's also data out recently, you know, about how, how much time it takes to get proficient in something. Again, you've probably heard of that. And the number I've heard is 10,000 hours. That's a long time, right? I actually, you know, if you meditated half an hour a day, that would be 55 years. So you better get going because time's <laughs> running out. Um, but I don't think that's to become proficient. They're talking about people, you know, being concert violinists or whatever. We don't need to be that proficient to really benefit from this kind of practice. Because 
as I said in the guided meditation, even though we use the body to kind of have the sense of grounding in the present moment, and it's a great kind of reflection of what we're feeling, everything kind of has an impact on the body, meditation really is the work of the mind. It's training the mind. It's, it's really cultivating a mind that um, is, is, is more skillful, more harmonious, more in line with our intentions. And our mind is always here. You know, even when we're asleep, it's there to some extent. But even if you talk about the waking hours, we are constantly training our minds. We're constantly creating intentions about our experience and how to relate to it. So when I, you know, 10,000 hours, I don't know, I didn't, what, you know, how many hours are you awake every day? I should have done that calculation. So what, 18 hours awake every day and made less than that. What is it, 15? I don't know. How many days is that? It's not as many as 55 years. Um, we're always, there's always the possibility of shifting this mind stream. How do we do that? Through mindfulness. So we just start to recognize that we're actually always cultivating something. We're always creating intentions. Why not have them be more in alignment with what we want for ourselves and for our loved ones and really for the planet? And mindfulness is, is a powerful way of doing that. And to see that with this training, it can actually change the mindfulness set point, that we can learn to be more in touch with our experience in ways that are helpful, in ways that are supportive, in ways that allow us to be more open and more in tune and more connected and kinder and wiser and compassionate. And it doesn't certainly happen all at once, you know, the there is still time involved, but it does happen. I have no doubt. And you wouldn't be here unless you had some sense of that, of this possibility. You know, there's this paradox or conundrum in spiritual practice. We're meant to let go of all attachment and not have goals. Yet why would you drive out to West Marin if you didn't have a sense that this would benefit you in some way? Um, so I think that's kind of a misunderstanding to say we shouldn't have goals or, or want to get some benefit from this practice. We need to have that sense that that's possible or else we won't have the motivation to keep doing it. It's really essential that we have a sense of the possibilities of this practice, whatever that might look like for us. And we'll all have different things that are important to us, different values, different areas of our life that we wish to have a little more um, fluidity in or skill in. So it's not like it's, we're talking about only one thing or one way that this might express itself. But it does happen. I actually always get surprised when I reflect on how long I've been practicing and you know, sometimes think, well, more should have happened. But here I am. I actually did my first retreat in the early 80s. I think it was 81. Um, didn't know anything about meditation. Had never meditated a day in my life. I was in India. I've been trying to teach myself out of books, but you might have tried that and know it's pretty hopeless. Um, so someone said, go to sit with S.N. Goenka, Goenkaji. He was doing a retreat down in Jaipur. I was living in McLeod Gunge in India. I was actually living there with my sister. We'd been traveling around in India for at least six months longer by that point. Um, and had a lot of different 
experiences. Um, but I really wanted to learn meditation, so I went, traveled down, and I, actually, it was one of those stories where someone told me, you know, he's doing a retreat. And so I just went to Jaipur. I didn't know where the retreat was or how to find, how to get there, you know. So I just went and landed in, you know, one of the cheap hostel kind of places. And I, somehow I found out. I wandered around asking people, do you know where the retreat is? And went, saw a yoga ashram and asked them. And finally someone actually said, oh, you need to go there. And it all worked out. But certainly my life probably would be different if it hadn't. So I went on this retreat. It was intense. How many people have been on a Goenka retreat? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the brave and hardy few. Um, they're intense. Uh, he was a, an amazing teacher. It changed my life. Um, but it was really intense. They're very, you know, it's a very strict regimen of, of meditation. But I just knew that there was something being offered here, even though I was probably clueless. You know, when I look back, I, I didn't really know what was going on. But it touched me so deeply that it really altered the course of my life. And from that time on, I, I really focused on what helps me stay closer and connected to meditation and the Dhamma. But when I got back home to McLeod, we were still living in McLeod with my sister, my younger sister. She said to me later that um, uh, when I got back from the retreat, I was kind to her for two weeks. <laughs> and I never know how to take that, whether that's really good that I was kind to her for two weeks, or two weeks is actually pretty pathetic, you know, that I... Um, I don't think I was ever really mean to her, but you know, she was my sister, we were traveling together, but so, and I wasn't trying to be kind, you know, it wasn't like, you know, oh, and now I'm a, a holy Buddhist and I should be nice to everyone. It was just out of that sensitivity that comes from this practice, there's an empathy and a connection that comes with people that you're just naturally kind. And I'm hoping that after two weeks I didn't become unkind, but perhaps just a little less noticeably kind. Um, but I really, I totally feel that meditation has made a huge difference in my life. I feel blessed that I've been able to have the life that I have. And when I look around at my friends, most of whom are very also immersed in the Dharma in different ways, I see how it's changed them as well. And we're all a little wiser and a little kinder to each other and more accepting of ourselves and more accepting of each other. Of course, the true test is to ask the spouse, the partner of the person, but luckily my husband also meditates, he's not here tonight, so you'll have to take my word, he thinks I'm better than I used to be. <laughs> so, this is, you know, we come because of this, we practice because of this, about this possibility of changing, of opening, of, of relieving our suffering, finding more ease. Um, but we struggle, right? You know, it's, it's, as I said, this doesn't come, the changes don't come out of wishful thinking. And for most of us, not all of us, our lives are challenging. All of the different experiences everyone here has had of loss, of grief, of, of failure, of, of um, things that haven't gone the way you want, of struggles that you have in your family or relationships or career, um, your own individual health and challenges, the ch health and challenges of people near and dear to you, um, death and loss, humans and animals. This is the nature of life. And we, you know, that's just within our circle of 
known beings. And then you move out larger and of course we see how troubled the world is and how difficult life is for many beings, human and non-human. And then climate change and just the the cruelty, the injustice there is in the world around, you know, indifference and prejudice and unkindness. Uh, it can really become very heavy for us. And so we struggle with this. Um, as much as we want happiness for ourselves, those around us, for all beings, difficult states of mind, whatever they might be, are often our constant companions through the busyness of our lives and our stress. And we react to those. The, the Buddha talked about the, the two arrows or the two darts where there's the initial stress point, the initial suffering, and then the mind that comes in and doesn't like it. I don't want this to be happening. It shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening to me or to them or to us. Uh, why is it this way, this resistance? And so we struggle, we grapple, we push and pull, and we're in, caught in these torments of mind and, and often create these habits of resistance or reactivity. And it's interesting, you know, once you start to pay attention to this, all of our flailing about, all of what we do, it actually is, at some deep level, our intention to get out of that or, or find happiness or not be struggling so much. But it's like the flypaper, right? Where you just get more and more stuck onto it in the struggle you have with it. Um, in Buddhism, these struggles have many names. We're very familiar with them. Um, the classic list is called the kalesas or the torments of mind, of greed, aversion, delusion. In practice, there's a longer list we call the hindrances of, um, it's very similar, greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. They're, they're considered things that um, obscure our ability to see clearly, particularly in meditation, but they are not refined, are not confined to just our meditation practice. It's what we struggle with all the time, and, and each of us has sort of tendencies of, one more than the other, but I'm sure you're all familiar with what we call multiple hindrance attacks, where it just seems like everything is roiling around. And we can get lost in that and don't, don't seem to be able to find a way out. Luckily, time on our side, you know, things calm down a little bit. We're kind of exhausted or overwhelmed. And it can even look back and go, what was that about? What was going on that I was so lost in that? mind state, that reactivity, that frustration or rage, um, or can just be a sort of subtle sense of discontent. You know, as I said earlier, this the sense that I should be happy, but it's not happening. Why isn't it happening? Or this whatever is happening shouldn't be happening. Um, I should be this way and not that way. This, this yearning, but not really with a clear sense of how to manifest what. Uh, how to change that. Now, this is very common, I think, for, for, for most of us. And so our practice is not to reject that or say it's bad or wrong, but really meditation invites us to explore it, to start to understand its seeds, its nature, its manifestation. And on the they're really two sides of the same coin. The more we're willing to understand what's difficult in our life, 
the more we have access to this well-being and contentment that I've been talking about. So we need to engage with what's difficult to be able to actually find true happiness. It doesn't come by pushing away. Um, and we really need to recognize that that struggle that we often find ourselves in actually exacerbates the feeling of being lost or caught. So it, it, it really is a training that we need to do where we are the subject of the experiment. Um, this is so important for us. Um, you know, the Buddha was considered the, uh, a great technician of the mind. And, uh, you know, I still get blown away when I read the texts and hear about how he was able to understand his own mind and, and, and through his great deep wisdom, really understand the human condition, why we get caught, why we struggle, why we suffer, and how to find release on all these different levels. Because you, obviously, are the only expert on yourself. And what I think is important is to take whatever other prime or predominant challenges in your life, take them seriously enough, and that means taking yourself seriously enough, to make them into practices, to have the confidence or faith that you can actually do something about them. And this is quite a radical shift because often we can feel the victim of these kinds of scenarios, you know, whatever our family situation or work situation, or even our internal sense of ourselves, like a helpless or hopeless kind of attitude around it. And the Buddha very clearly said, no, it is possible to radically change this mind stream. And in fact, it's imperative that you do so. And he said something like, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do so. But it is possible, so I do ask you to do so. So in becoming experts on ourselves, this is where mindfulness is really key. You know, sometimes you can perhaps wonder, you know, how does meditation help me? You know, I sit down and close my eyes and feel my breath. So what, you know? Well, just doing that in and of itself, yeah, right, it, it's not going to change anything, certainly very radically. But what we're doing in that is training ourselves to pay attention and to notice what's happening. We often say in an unjudgmental way, in a kind way, in a receptive way, but not in a passive way. Not in a way where it's like, oh, this is what's happening. Oh, well, you know, I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm fearful. Oh, well, I'm just being true to my experience. This is what's happening. This is not what the Buddha said. He said it's actually imperative that we have a sense, again, of what's for our true benefit and welfare, you could say what brings us happiness, true happiness, and to know how to cultivate that, how to bring that about. Um, and we can do this. It's not a quick and easy fix. It's actually something that takes time, but we've all had tastes in, in our meditation, in our lives, of the possibility of this deeper and more complete freedom and happiness. Um, and so we have to start trusting that, to really engage with that. And as I said, to make it 
whatever it is for you, a practice. And when I say a practice, I don't just mean sitting on the cushion and thinking about it. I mean really engaging with it, whatever it might be. So, you know, when I thought of this talk, as I said, I wanted to bring in the hindrances because they're classically how we talk about difficult states of mind. And they, you can um, put almost any difficult state of mind you have into one of the five hindrances, so I could talk about that. But I thought I would just hear from you. What are some of the common difficult, habitually difficult mind states or experiences that you find yourself in, in your daily lives? Just say, call out, and I'll write them down. Financial. Financial. So that's more the, um, I'm talking about the emotional response. That's more the kind of life situation. So what's your response to having financial difficulties? Stress. Stress. Frustration. Stress. Frustration. Impatience. Fear. Fear. Anger. Shame. Shame. Hopelessness. Hopelessness. Sadness. Defeated. Wanting things to be different. My pen has just run out, so I'm going to have to stop there. No, I've got a bit more. Wanting things to be different. Okay, so I only have a few minutes. I'm not going to get to all of these. But when I thought myself, what might people say? Pretty much this list. You know, because we're all swimming in the same set of experiences, culture, you know, different ones might be stronger or whatever for people. But I thought that a really common one might be stress, right? It's, it's a big sort of grab bag term. It's like the opposite of happiness. Happiness is a big grab bag term for well-being and contentment. Stress is a word that we hear so much in this culture. And it's a physiological response, you know, it really is something that's very, um, well, we ha it has a strong impact on us, and, and literally on our health, on our well-being, you know, you can measure stress in someone. But this is where meditation and stepping back a little can be really helpful. I actually did because I thought stress might come up. I did a bit of research, and it also came to mind because I just read an article in The New Yorker that talked about this, about a new book that's out called Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time by Bridget Schulte. And I actually read two reviews of it recently because this is such a common theme for people in this culture, stress, busyness. You know, I'm not here to resolve that. These are big issues. But I wanted to point to a couple of ways that meditation or a Buddhist perspective can be helpful. And these two of the articles, actually, two of the articles, actually, I didn't bring the New Yorker one, but two of them, they're not Buddhist at all. One of them is, it's by Philip Moffat, who's a, again a spirit rock teacher, um, teaches regularly in Marin, very wise person all talking about this, this experience of stress. Now let me say a few things that stood out for me. Two main classifications of stress. This is from T Tess Thompson. 
um, the biggest causes of stress, acute and chronic. Acute stress is normal in modern life and can be caused by any uh, event that, you know, strikes us with immediacy. But chronic stress is caused you a continued state of stress that f refuses to go away. But she makes a point, which Philip does too, and it comes out in this other article, that basically stress is a matter of perception and therefore the manner in which one thinks about things and events is one of the biggest causes of stress. A stressor does not cause stress on its own. It is the manner in which it is perceived that causes stress. It says later, almost everything has the potential to cause stress since it is the thinking that causes stress and not the event itself. The reality is that stress or a stress-free life is dependent upon how our brain interprets the data provided by our senses. And this is where meditation and mindfulness can come in to really track this. Philip's point is that everyone experiences pressure, which is a common phenomena of just having a lot to do, busyness in life. Stress, he said, pressure is the natural response to the weight or heaviness of the demands in your life, which you experience in your body, particularly your nervous system. Pressure is like an internal messenger telling you, pay attention. Stress is a very different phenomenon. It is your mind's fearful and anxious, anxious and immediate reaction to the de demands that you face. The reason stress can be harmful is because it provokes an exaggerated and appropriate fight or flight response. So again, I don't want to make this too simplistic. This is a, a real challenge for most, if not all of us, this sense of stress, busyness, and overwhelm but just wanting to point to the clarification or the concept that's happening here, it's a lot about perception. The Buddha talked a huge amount about perception, that what we're trying to do in meditation is get closer to what the reality of an experience is. And so in an experience of pressure, as Philip would call it, to not become stressed, staying in the moment with our experience and knowing it just as a certain reaction in the body, certain th thoughts in the mind, it's possible to shift that experience. It's not something that happens immediately. Again, we can't wish it to be so. We'll often be overwhelmed. But I just wanted to point to the fact that it's possible and that this shift in perception is, it, uh, was throughout these three articles and apparently throughout that book. I haven't read it. But the book, uh, this article that I got from Slate, Hannah Rosen, she, her, t uh, little article, her article was entitled, You're Not As Busy As You Say You Are. Also, by talking about it so much, you're wasting time. <laughs> and it's one of these articles, I've read a bunch of them, you probably have too, talking about busyness. You know, are you too busy? You should be. And you should let people know in a proud but exasperated tone. You know, how busy are you? Crazy busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy I can't help you. I'm so busy I can't volunteer. I'm so busy. And in parentheses, as this book and the article says, I'm important because I'm busy. It's become a kind of social measure of status to be really busy. And so this book is about the overwhelm 
um, all, always behind and always late with one more thing and one more thing and one more thing to do before rushing out the door. You know, we all know that, that sense of busyness and overwhelm. She has lots of examples. She says, and she's probably quoting or referring to the book, to be deep in the overwhelm requires not just doing too many things in one 24-hour period, but doing so many different kinds of things that they all blend into each other and a day has no sense of distinct phases. Researchers, researchers call it contaminated time and apparently women are more susceptible to it than men because they have a harder time shutting down the tape that runs in their heads about what needs to get done that day. And so there's this whole culture out there of stress and busyness and overwhelm that's the opposite of happiness. But what I found interesting, as I said, one aspect was a shift in perception. Well, actually, this is that too. In the book, Shulti attaches herself to John Robertson, a sociologist known as Father Time because he's one of the first people to start collecting time use diaries, which tells us about how we live. Um, da -da -da -da. But Robinson seems to come, have come up with the most convincing antidote to the overwhelm. So here's what this guy, John Robertson, said. He doesn't ask us to meditate or take more vacations or breathe or walk in nature or do anything that will invariably feel like just another item on the to-do list. The answer to feeling oppressively, oppressively busy, he said, is to stop telling yourself that you're oppressively busy because the truth is that we are all much less busy than we think we are. And our consistent insistence that we are busy has created a host of personal and social ills, which Schulte reports on in a great deal in her book. Unnecessary stress, exhaustion, bad decision-making, and on a bigger level, a conviction that the ideal worker is one who is available at all times because he or she is grateful to be busy and that we should all aspire to the insane schedules of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, you know, he says not to meditate. And as, you know, I can understand that. If you're feeling really busy and overwhelmed, someone telling you, well, take more time to go and meditate isn't going to help. And that's why I was pointing to um, this training of the mind that's hap we need to be doing in the moment, not on some wished-for meditation retreat or you know, time when we have the time to meditate. And it's this shift in perception or training that can actually, it sounds like, make a huge difference in how we relate to stress and this sense of overwhelm. Robinson said when they actually look at people's diaries, um, it doesn't back up this sense of overwhelming busyness. When you tell people they have 30 or 40 free hours of free time every week, they don't want to believe it because they're in the busyness trap. So. Again, I'm not an expert on all this. I just thought it was interesting when I thought that stress would be one of the top things that would come up, that many of us can relate to it, where meditation can help is not necessarily to do more meditation and put that on your to-do list, though. Personally, I think it actually could help um, because it gives us a perspective on how crazy our minds normally are. It actually values sitting still and not doing anything against being in the manic overwhelm. 
Um, so I, I personally, a little bias obviously, think that meditation can really help. But what I think actually is as important, perhaps more important for those of us, we're lay people living these busy lives with all the commitments that we have, is this willingness to make whatever label you would have put on this. So, the, you know, the first one, I, and I've talked mainly about stress, but you can see how frustration, fear, anger, shame, hopelessness, sadness, defeated can all be tied into that. So, you know, you could put stress as the big headline because all of these other experiences either come out of stress or um, support creating stress. What we need to do is determine what is it that is this challenging mind state, this habitual mind state. And what do we want to do about that? And to trust or believe that it's possible. This is so important. And then, as I said, to make practices about it, um, to actually believe that it's possible. It's all in how we relate to things. Little story I read um, where a psychologist walked around a room while teaching stress management to an audience. As she raised a glass of water, everyone expected that they'd be, not, they'd be asked, is it half empty or half full? Mine's about three quarters, but anyway. So instead, with a smile on her face, she inquired, how heavy is this glass of water? So I'll ask you, I have a glass. How heavy is it? It's glass, it's, it's actually solid glass, pretty, it's got three quarters full of water. 16 ounces. 16 ounces. I'm hearing a lot of muttering, but no numbers. Not that heavy? Not that heavy. <laughs> so it's all relative, but it's heavy enough. Heavy enough, but I want some numbers. 12, 10, one pound, isn't that 16 ounces? <laughs> Um, so I don't know how heavy it is, maybe she did, but she said, the absolute weight doesn't matter. It depends on how long I hold it. If I hold it for a minute, it's not a problem. If I hold it for an hour, I'd have an ache in my arm. If I hold it for a day, my arm will feel numb and paralyzed. In each case, the weight of the glass doesn't change, but the longer I hold it, the heavier it becomes. She continued, the stress and worries in life are like that glass of water. Think about them for a while and nothing happens. Think about them a bit longer and they begin to hurt. And if you think about them all day long, you will feel paralyzed, incapable of doing anything. And so we need to pay attention to what our minds are doing and realize there are more choices in that mind stream that you, than you might perhaps have thought possible. And again, this is where mindfulness comes in. It doesn't take sitting down on a cushion for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour or going on a retreat to stop in a moment and take a breath and just ask yourself, what's happening here? You know, what, we have lots of line, you know, what thought am I believing right now? What story am I telling myself? How is my heart? How is my breath? just very simple interventions like that can break that weight that we carry 
And often, often it's unnoticed. We're so habituated to carrying that weight that it seems right or fitting that we do. You know, the world would end if I didn't, you know, carry it all on my shoulders. If we really value our mental health and our physical health, because I'm sure you know they affect each other, we need to have the confidence, the faith, the belief that this is possible. The Buddha said that it is. You've probably in your life had experiences where you also know that it is. Um, but this is the work of meditation. It's not sort of just about some vague end goal of enlightenment, but here and now in our lives, really addressing these issues, the stresses in our lives. And it can. It's, again, as I said, not a simple or easy fix. This, however you calculate the 10,000 hours until you have it totally figured out. But even doing it for a moment in a day can make a difference. So I just wanted, before we have a few minutes before the end, just to check in, you know, you had a very, it was a very, uh, the list of the challenges came out very quickly. I'm curious now about any skillful means that anyone has found to, to work with these kind of challenges in your life. You know, I said quite a few just simple ones of the, the using mindfulness. You know, we know things like being out in nature, but more in the moment when you're in these difficult situations, when you fear the fear, fear or the frustration or the shame, what's, what's worked for you? And maybe we can use the microphone because otherwise it's hard for everyone to hear. Anyone, what's been helpful for you? Marianne? I take the wait for the microphone. It's just more easy. Being a chicken at heart, uh-huh. <laughs> I find spiritual inspiration. And when you look at where we live in the middle of the universe, and as Stevie Wonder says, you know, as around the sun, the earth keeps just keeps revolving. Mm. The seasons know exactly when to change. Mm -hmm. And that hate knows love's the cure you can rest your mind assured that I'll be loving you always so I try to feel hey I'm in the middle of this fabulous miracle and I'm worried about this awful thing right and I want to I just need to sort of put myself in a hammock in the sky and right. just you know try to say you're in it, you might as well relax. Because here it is. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So the big perspective, you, when we get so enmeshed in, in the stuff of our lives and it only takes, you know, so you were just doing it spontaneously or as a, as a support for yourself, but it only takes, you know, the terrible accident or illness or whatever to come in and all of that stuff is just forgotten. Yeah, the so, whole universe is doing this fabulous thing is keep expanding something in it knows what it's doing yeah. so if I don't feel good I mean I, I, I just have to trust trust it. something yeah, yeah. thank Brand, you wonderful so that, there was def definitely a gentleman at the back and a gentleman over here I attended Donald Rothberg's Wednesday uh, lecture on the history of Theravada Theravada Buddhism uh -huh. in Thailand. Uh -huh. And one meditation practice in the monasteries in the forest of northeastern Thailand was uh, 
tiger fear meditation uh -huh. where they had the monks go out and walk next to the tigers. And I'm just glad we don't have tigers here, but... Mountain lions? Uh, mountain lions, there you go. <laughs> and it really kind of resonated with me because it's a version. When I get into fear mm. and I don't like this, mm. then I'm totally whacked. Mm. And, and so it was very inspirational because mm. it was courage mm -hmm. is what they were, that you know. And let me tell you, I nobody's more of a coward than I. But I was really impressed with that. And I know that you need to not have a version mm -hmm. and be attentive to what's going mm -hmm. on and not be reactive mm -hmm. but uh, and I can't uh, recommend Donald's lecture series on because it's all of Indochina it really is truly one of the most fascinating Ooh. lectures so it'll be here on Wednesday on 9 great well thank you bit of advertising so maybe just this last one because we're right on our time at the back there thanks Um, at the risk of seeming like a, a gadfly, I'd like to share an opinion with you about uh, what we are talking about, and it is this. Uh, we talk about I, you use the, uh, we loosely use the words we, I, we ought to do this, me. I really suggest that we take a good hard look at these pronouns, because these I's and we's that are talking about are not us. They are, to be sure, some construct of our personality and persona, but they get us into trouble, and they keep us every day more and more further away from, I'm simply going to say it, your authentic being. There is, are we willing to do that? Are we, are we willing to say that I actually have an authentic being, a self that is authentic, that came and was born in freedom and in love. And, and in order for it to survive, it needs that. Uh -huh. I, I hope we all have an authentic aspect to ourselves. And I find the, I, the pronouns... I'm not talking about personality, believe me. Yeah, I and we, you know, they're just useful, so I use them. And so did the Buddha. So it doesn't mean that there's something solid there. Um, you know, the, to reify it or anything, but they're just useful conventions. I, I but would we have actually, to wind. I would beg to differ, but not here. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for the comment, and I totally love the authentic being. Thank you. So we're right on our time of ending, 9.15. Um, I don't know where Sean, we don't have any announcements or anything. Um, so thank you for your attendance this evening. I hope this was helpful for you. Um, and uh, if anything I said offended anyone, I apologize. But my intention is to actually support your practice and, and uh, lead you to more happiness and freedom. So thank you. Hope to see you again on the Dharma Trail. And our only uh, instruction as you leave is turn right out of Spirit Rock. We need to do that for the sake of our friends in the community and the sheriff who catches people. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.